Welcome to Earth News Interviews, the podcast where we sit down with the experts and discuss the biggest questions and discoveries in the Earth Sciences today. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Earth News Interviews. My name is Dean. Joining me is my co-host, Sophia. Hey, everyone. And today, our guest is Professor Joe Deloge. Good afternoon. Uh, so thank you for joining us. Um, we've, we haven't had anyone to talk about this, this kind of subject, and it, I think this one has a large intersection with, with societal implications, with, with applications in real life. And so we, we do love those kind of uh, topics, and this is definitely one that we've been wanting to do for a while. Can I ask some uh, background information on you? How is it that you got interested into in the research that you've uh, found yourself in? And what is it that you do? Uh, for sure, correct. Uh, and again, thank you for having me. I um, it's a passion on this particular topic only because it's a subset of, of my academic interests around geomorphology and a particular river geomorphology um, or fluvial geomorphology. Um, that's where uh, I conduct fundamental research. Uh, I have graduates and undergraduate students involved in a number of projects uh, across Canada in this particular area. Uh, but as you work on the sort of fundamentals of landscape change and landscape dynamics, of course you run into applied issues, uh, natural hazards, a wide variety of things, and that intersection between uh, pure research and, and the application of the kinds of things that you're uh, studying is really uh, fundamental in a lot of, of earth sciences and geosciences. So um, I get into the, the segue of, of flooding and flood hazards and the impact on humans and, and uh, as a result of that. So that's the connection. Walk us through uh, your career path, starting from undergrad. How did you get to where you are today? Oh, by the way, uh, Joe is a cross-appointed professor in the Earth Sciences and Geography Department at U of T. Uh, thank you for that. And thanks for the opportunity for saying it, because I think a lot of undergrads to grads to postgraduate careers think about the same thing. Um, I had a, uh, an undergraduate degree from University of Waterloo, and it was in a cooperative study. So there was lots of opportunities to have work terms in many places around Canada particularly in the north, everything from diamond drilling to uh, uh, water or, or natural resources management in the north, uh, groundwater research in, in the Toronto region. So at the end of the undergraduate, and, and I'm not sure the same opportunities exist today, but they certainly did for me back then, is I had a, a very uh, important choice to make at the end of the undergraduate studies is go go graduate study and think about faculty careers and research careers. Uh, or uh, take up full-time employment as a consultant. And that was a tricky one. But many of my graduate students undertake consulting jobs today as full-time careers. And so either of those are, are legitimate pathways coming out of undergraduate studies. But I chose the graduate pathway, went to University of Wisconsin-Madison, uh, studied with a world-class uh, fluvial geomorphologist there, and then uh, just followed on that from connections and conferences and student colleagues and research projects, uh, working with another world-class fluvial geomorphologist at the University of British Columbia. And so as a result, you're just surrounded by the enthusiasm and motivation for, for this subdiscipline 
and uh, it's pretty infectious that way to not seek out academic appointments. And so I was very fortunate to uh, come to University of Toronto and do what I love, and that is field science, particularly related to Earth surface landforms. Is there anything special about uh, Toronto or this region uh, when it comes to your field? Not not special, uh, if anything, more, more typical. Uh, but it's interesting when you look at natural earth surface processes, you can think of them in natural, uninhabited, uh, so-called wild rural settings, if you like. But as soon as it starts intersecting humans, it takes on a different perspective. So being in, a, in the greater Toronto area, certainly uh, the largest population concentration in Canada, when floods occur in those kinds of environments, they take on uh, heightened awareness and uh, the key one, greater costs, uh, particularly around insurance. So um, being in large urban centers where even small floods can have large economic impacts, yeah, Toronto is, is unique in the Canadian context that way, but not, it doesn't stand alone though globally. Yeah, I'm really glad you uh, brought up the intersection between concentrated urban centers and and the environmental hazards that uh, that can pose a risk to uh, to those cities and the livelihoods of the people in them. So uh, environmental hazards have been a natural part of human history since we diverged from our common ancestor with the chimpanzees. But until very recently, these natural disasters just happened to our species without our intervention. So for instance, we know about the infamous and tragic eruption of Mount Vesuvius that killed many of the residents of the city of Pompeii in Italy. Now, though, natural disasters can be predicted and we can prepare ourselves for them by earthquake-proofing our homes, or like you mentioned, getting insurance. Well, by developing these effective predictive systems, um, we can hope to mitigate some of the, some of the impacts or we can geoengineer our environment to prevent these things like, like flooding. But intervention is a two-way street, and our attempts to change our environment for the better have been coupled with our change of environment for the worst. So here I'm talking about climate change. You don't have to try too hard to find evidence of increasing frequency and severity of floods, wildfires, and other natural disasters that, although aren't new, are occurring in places that aren't prepared for them. So today we're going to be talking about an article that's all about flood hazards and how we can minimize our risk in a world where these events are predicted to happen more often and in places that haven't seen it before. So Dean, take it away with a paper summary. Thank you for the contextual setup, Sophia. Um, so this article is titled How to Protect Your Home from Disasters Amplified by Climate Change. It was published on sciencenews.org earlier last year. And in it, the author talks about two hazards which are on the rise thanks to climate change, flooding and wildfires. Uh, we're going to be specifically focusing on flooding, though, because that is Joe's expertise. So before we get into what has changed, I think it'd be helpful to contrast hazards versus risks. I'm going to give these definitions, which I got from the Canadian Centre for Occupational Health and Safety. And I think that the nuance transfers for discussion of floods. And, and of course, Joe, correct me if I'm wrong or make any mistakes. A, a hazard is any source of potential damage, harm, or adverse effects on something or someone. A risk is the chance or probability that something or someone will be harmed if exposed to a hazard. So in the case of floods, hazards would be the historical flood extent and depth, 
the velocity of the water, the soil erosion, these are the hazards. The risk of flooding is determined by where we choose to build our homes, uh, the quality of the levees we build, the types of surfaces in the area, whether you have wetland areas nearby, which can soak, soak up and mitigate the floodwaters, or if we have a lot of concrete, which probably more aids in the transportation of the water even further. This, this article is saying that both the hazards, like the flood maps, and the risks associated with flooding are getting worse, in part due to climate change. Can you elaborate on, on that connection? Sure. Maybe, maybe just some context. Just the word hazard and the word risk is um, through the lens of human populations, although we can think of other species that are in the way of hazards and are subject to risk. But we tend to think of risk as negative. We tend to think of hazard as negative. But in a, in a natural geological world over, over millennium and, and uh, Cenozoic timescales, uh, flooding uh, fires are part, and, and your earlier example was volcanic eruptions, are part of the natural landscape. Uh, matter of fact, we don't, we don't have a planet the way we have it today without the presence of those kinds of events. Uh, floodplain soils don't get renewed. Nutrients in, in regional ash falls don't uh, recycle as a result of volcanism. And of course, uh, forest and forest biomes don't regenerate without uh, the impact of, of fire. So uh, if it's, it's all about the lens that you're looking at. And of course, in the human lens, the two most dramatic ones are loss of life, obviously, in terms of exposure to natural processes as they occur. And the other one is is loss of economic dollars. In other words, what is the cost uh, that you can put towards a hazard that actually has an economic impact? So uh, being human, we always tend to think of the latter. It's, it's, it's detrimental. It needs to be controlled. Um, even if, you're not, if you have some dispute about the cause and that it's costing money and it costs us uh, as a society, both life and, and economic impact. So I just wanted to put that lens out there right now. And as you said, this one's about uh, protecting your home. Well, not all of us are in a privileged state to be able to own property, to own a home. Uh, so you also have to think about uh, the status of the individual. Those that have to rent, those that have to rent through landlords don't necessarily think about risk and hazards in that context. So just keep those those background in mind as we're talking about this, because if you're fortunate enough to be a landowner and a homeowner, then yeah, you do think about these a little bit differently than if you can't afford those kinds of things. So does that make sense just as a context? Yeah, that definitely. It's good to think of us, our, the natural context as well as our own but, uh, you know, we've grown from, from 2 to 3 billion people to, to over 7 billion people in, in a relatively short time on this planet. So there's greater awareness and there's greater exposure. And as you said, there's greater risk involved with people in terms of their intersection with floods and fires. And so we're, it's heightened awareness. And, you know, even if you didn't have climate change occurring, there'd be heightened awareness. There would be responsiveness to this and there'd be media and, and uh various kinds of, of narratives all around this. But then you add the climate change issue on top of it, both natural and anthropogenically controlled, and that just heightens the whole thing. So the Science News article was really about, uh, yes, the amplification of climate change, no question about it, human impact on that, no question about it. Uh, but 
both historically and contemporaneously, where are we building? Where are we putting infrastructure at risk? Where are we putting humans at risk with respect to this amplification And is, is one of the key questions. I was just going like, to kind of comment, like, I'm somewhat of a hobbyist in personal finance and in this in the stock trade, there's there's a saying past performance is not indicative of future results. It's markets change, new technologies change what's possible, new laws change what's legal. And it, it seems like climate change is causing an analogous situation of uncertainty regarding our knowledge of the hazards and the risks. Would would you would you agree with that and maybe elaborate on some of the the connection between climate change and flooding? Yeah, it's interesting. There was a paper that just came out recently on um, Tiano people in, in Cuba about building their coastal uh, huts on stilts along coastlines to protect against hurricane impact. And there's still this debate, no, they weren't trying to mitigate the hazards of hurricanes. They were. So, you know, these are populations from 1500 years ago, 1500 to 500 years ago, that, that were sort of adapting to um, natural hazards in that sense. But when we move forward to today and we think about investing in, in landscapes and investing in our future by both historical causes, because guess what? Most villages, towns, and cities grew up along waterways because they were natural transportation. And that was both um, pre-colonization of North America, but indigenous populations lived by rivers. Uh, European settlement in, in this country lived by rivers. They were the transportation routes. And so being in close proximity to these uh, naturally flooding environments just put that infrastructure at risk for hundreds of years. So the question is, as they grow and develop historically, what's the uh, what's the impact? So, uh, you know, your stock market analogy is a good one. Investing, investing in infrastructure, investing in futures. Um, and how do you protect that? So... It also talks about how everyone is at risk of flooding, not just the people who live near the shorelines and the riverbanks, um, but because heavy rainfall events are an increasing cause of flooding, they can happen technically just about anywhere. So everybody, it says, should have flood insurance on their home. Uh, how do you feel about this, this claim? Is it everywhere is at risk of flooding? Yeah, and uh, you know, if you if you take the insurance equation out of it, if you take the economic loss out of it, then uh, whether it's um, excessive rainfall, drought, snowfall, and uh, snowmelt impacts, yes, everyone's at risk. But if you think of the homeowner perspective, especially in the GTA as an example, you don't need to live by a river. You don't need to live along a shoreline to actually have increased risk of water damage to infrastructure, property, and so on. Uh, Just heavy rainfall on their own can cause uh, stormwater sewer backflows, uh, basement flooding, as we've seen in several examples in Toronto. So a wide variety of contexts where you're not even close to waterways where excessive rainfall can do that. But as those are in managed landscapes. Those are in landscapes where you have a lack of infiltration, uh, insufficient or old stormwater management infrastructure in place, and hence risk in basement flooding, as an example. Uh, the Insurance Company of Canada several years ago uh, actually took away carte blanche insurance for basement flooding and said, now we're going to insure that separately. Uh, and you have to decide how much insurance you want for your basement separate from the rest of your house. 
too many claims on sewer backups uh, as a result of either poorly managed sewer lines or just uh, infrastructure that's overwhelmed by heavy rainfall. So now you have to choose uh, separately in your insurance policy how much you want to insure your basement for uh, compared to, let's say, a leak from the from a bathroom on the upper floor of a structure as opposed to backup of sewer into your basement. So there's this, this new mapping program. It's called Flood Factor, and it's created through a collaboration of over 70 experts, and it claims to make flood risks more understandable and accessible to the general public. You'll be able to basically type in your home address, and you'll get a detailed report on the risks present in your area. Is this a, a totally new thing, or is this just like a, a better version of an old thing? Well, it's uh, restricted to the U.S. Uh, I can't tell you actually whether the Euro- European jurisdiction has something similar. And certainly Canada uh, doesn't have uh, an online system that covers every property in this country. We do have flood line mapping. We do have risk areas that are mapped out. We do have uh, two-zone and one-zone floodplain risk areas mapped out in heavily populated areas. So we do have that information available, but not like flood factor in the U.S. Now, this is interesting. Imagine you layered on top of your risk from flooding, risk from forest fire, risk from crime, risk from any other hazard that might occur. Tornadoes is a big one. Uh, Risk from hail, risk from other things. So imagine you've got eight maps layered on top of each other, and uh, all of a sudden your property has some kind of index value determined by others. And you said 70 experts. It could be more, could be less. And so now you go to buy a property, sell a property. The first thing you look at is the hazard risk factor. And some might argue that's good to have it up front. Some might argue you've just ruined my the value of my property by slapping on uh, a nine-level risk factor uh, on a map that everyone can see. So it's sort of a double-edged sword on that front. I'm in favor of, of more transparency. Uh, more expertise brought to the problem, but one might question who are the 70 experts, what's their prediction, and what data are they using to actually produce this? You hope it's high quality, you hope it's valid, you hope it's verified, uh, but you could question uh, these. And if you look at the flood factor maps, it covers the entire U.S. down to every single structure. And uh, that, that gets a bit tricky. Plus, it focuses on floods. It does not focus on other hazards. So I'm, I'm a bit leery about this kind of, kind of thing, but I think it's a first approximation of just knowing where uh, flooding is likely to occur in a region and whether you want to protect your property if you live there already or whether you want to buy that property if you're considering it. And whether those experts are in cahoots with the insurance companies. Big insurance. <laughs> <laughs> uh, f- for sure. And we can think of New Orleans and the uh, Katrina in 05 as, as sort of the recent big example. But here's my question back to you. Do you know the top 10 most expensive disasters and uh, natural hazard disasters in Canada? Top 10 of all time. And I'm not supposed to ask the interviewer questions, but I'm doing it anyways. <laughs> no, yeah, it's fine. We, we enjoy it. We enjoy being interviewed. We rarely do. Right. So in the Canadian context, there's 10 top costing. And again, this is insurance industry perspective where insurance claims went through the roof as a result of these natural disasters. I was just going to 
say the one in the most recent history, like the 2013 flooding of the Don Valley, just because like I can put a number to it. I read recently, I think it was like a billion dollars in damage and it's the one that's freshest in my memory. Yeah. And that's number four on the list. Yes. I've only lived in Canada for a few years now, so I, I may not have like the historical knowledge, but I'm going to guess it has something to do with a blizzard. That'll be my guess. Uh, snowstorm, you mean, and accidents snowstorm. and deaths and things of that nature. Yeah, snow yeah doesn't I mean, even, like disruptions like that. Yeah, you know, snow doesn't make the top 10. Tornadoes don't make the top 10 in, Can- in the Canadian context uh, as far as insurance claims are concerned. Uh, and I have to tell you this, and, I, and, I, and it's only because I've spent considerable time in this particular province, but one province in particular lays claim to six of the top 10 most costly natural disasters of all time. It's our lovely western province of Alberta. Oh, fires um, from the tar sands? Oh, that's another environmental impact we could have a whole, a whole discussion about. But no, the Fort McMurray uh, fire... Uh, in 2016, May of 2016, is the number one on the list. What was that? Fort McMurray burned to the ground. It's it's an oil sand city, obviously, but um, it's you know the California fires are are technically more devastating than than the Fort McMurray. But in the Canadian context, for a fire that got out of control in a populated area, it lists at number one. So, 1,500 structures were destroyed. Uh, loss of life, and uh, huge impact is number one. Number two is the 2013 Alberta floods, uh, when the Bow River just blew its banks, uh, Milk River, tons of other rivers in southern Alberta in June of 2013, and in terms of insurance damage and so on. Um, the only other hazards to make that list are the uh, the ice storm of 1998 that took out a lot of infrastructure, hydropower infrastructure in eastern Canada. And Toronto makes two of them, uh, as we just mentioned, the 2013 flood and the August uh, 2005 flood, where we had huge amounts of of riverbank damage, river floodplain damage, and loss of property damage. Fortunately, guess what? No loss of life. So if you go back to 1954, October 14th, 15th, Hurricane Hazel, when we had 80 people lose their lives in the Humber River Valley, you could think of that as being an all-time disaster uh, in terms of loss of life. Uh, but in insurance terms and in claims terms, it's not. So again, historical perspective and influence of, of these. But flooding does occupy uh, six of the top 10 disasters. Hail is in there as well. Uh, two hailstorms, guess where, in Alberta. So that's why Alberta has uh, a top six place in terms of insurance claims. But we're talking about floods here, and uh, it occupies uh, six six of the top uh, disasters in Canada in terms of costs from insurance claims. There have been a lot of improvements in, in flood damage mitigation strategies at the household level that can kind of decrease the, the risk of flood damage. they got sump pumps, they got waterproof front doors, garage doors, ductwork. Uh, these seem like last-ditch efforts, though. I wonder if you could discuss some larger-scale mitigation strategies uh, that cities and regions can employ, both artificial and natural solutions, that have been brought forth. Sure, and, it, and it's a multi-layered, multi-jurisdictional approach. Uh, and we're diff- a little bit different in the U.S. when flood hazard 
comes out, usually you hear from the province in terms of mitigation and cleanup and things of that nature. Um, in the U.S., you tend to hear from FEMA, which is federal. So programs at the federal level to, to help manage mitigation, programs at provincial level, programs at provincial levels, and then right down to the individual landowner's responsibility. So it's a, it's a joint effort one way or the other. What the governments can do at the higher jurisdiction levels is really set about, uh, sorry, conservation authorities in Southern Ontario are layered in that uh, as part of the provincial response to flood hazards. They help buy up property in, in low-lying green space, so recreation, parks, golf courses, that's those that should be subject to flood hazards, not expensive houses and, and, um, and urban infrastructure. Uh, so buying up property since Hurricane Hazel by the conservation authorities has been the number one way of reducing hazards in at least the city of Toronto and the greater Toronto area. But the f- uh, flood reduction program in the, in the 90s, uh, 80s and 90s was federal led and that was mostly about mapping who's, who's in hazard zones and who's not. And what kind of insurance can you get for building new structures that are in currently mapped areas is critical. Uh, and how do you protect your homes? It doesn't mean you can't build in risk areas, but it means you have to protect the structure that you're building. And that can be more expensive. Think of earthquake construction in Vancouver, for example, hugely expensive to earthquake proof your buildings. But nevertheless, it's a, it's planning for potential future hazards, and that's done primarily at a provincial and city level to try and absorb those costs. But you mentioned about what individuals can do during a flood hazard or to try and prevent the flood hazards. You know, the number one in Toronto was to uh, disconnect your downspouts from your roof. Impervious roofs and paved roads represent the number one uh, impervious surface areas in, in urban settings. And the more you can disconnect those from overflowing the stormwater systems, the greater the impact it has. And, and here's the trick that most of the water managers would say in terms of reducing flood hazards. If you can just shave off the first five millimeters of rainfall that falls on an urban surface, just shave it off the hydrograph, you have a better chance of reducing, overwhelming the storm water sewer systems by um, uh, accounting for that. So your water retention ponds, your big storage bins, like they're building on the Don Valley, uh, massive infrastructure to try and reduce flooding on the lower Don River. Um, the big pit, if you've seen the construction projects on that, just ways of holding backwater that should not be getting into these uh, river systems in the first place because they should be infiltrating and they should be retained locally. And if you've been to all the subdivisions around the GTA, everyone has these beautiful ponds, fountains spurting out of them all around. They look lovely, but what they are are flood control. And that is to every property that gets developed is manage the water, manage the water, manage the water. Highway 407, it was built across the GTA, had one of the best hydrological management plans in terms of retaining water running off from this massive paved project. And you see nothing but retention pond after retention pond to try and mitigate that. So again, local, provincial, federal ways of doing this. The question that really interests me is how these flood risk assessments are made, because it just so happens that right before the episode, Dean sent me a link to a John Oliver video on floods, where he was saying that 
from the from a previous uh, risk assessment review, um, after I believe it was Hurricane Hazel, it was it turned out that seventy five percent of the area that was flooded during the hurricane wasn't predicted for in these flood assessments. So there was a huge kind of discrepancy between what they said was the area that was risky and the the area that actually got flooded. So how is flood risk assessed and what's the role of geomorphology in it? Yeah, and, and again, that's a con- consortium issue. The, the way water flows through systems, the way it erodes beds and banks, the way it transports sediments, um, uh, the way you can regime shift a channel from being a nice meandering uh, fluvial system into a high-energy dynamic braided system, and we've seen that in Toronto, Highland Creek in 2005, uh, completely transformed its its regime relationships, i.e. its balance between climate and the response of the river in terms of its morphology and its shape. And so um, prediction is getting harder because what you hear in the last 10 or 20 years is, oh, we just had the 500-year flood. Well, uh, and again, remember, it's not a flood every 500 years. It has a 1 in 500 chance of occurring any year. So it's sort of a catch-up game with high, high lake levels. Um, and sorry, I'm, I'm diverging a little bit from your question, but in two, uh, 2011, 12, 13, there was a group, a grassroots group, uh, along the shores of Lake Huron that said, stop the drop. In other words, uh, Lake Huron was at all-time record low level water levels, and docks were high and dry, cottages were left out in the, in the dry, and they had pictures of, of complete what they call devastation in terms of marinas and, and recreational properties and things of that nature. By 2017, Lake Huron and the other lower Great Lakes were at record all-time highs. What the uh, Stop the Drop group wanted to do was spend a billion dollars and build a dam at the outlet of Lake Huron. Stop the Drop group blamed the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers for uh, dredging out the Huron River, St. Clair River, and dropping the levels of Lake Huron. So all this narrative was going on around causes and effects. In terms of the Great Lakes, it's actually climate that influences it, not what engineers are doing or what other things are doing. Now, that's human-modified climate. And so chasing the probability of rainfall snowfall and snowfall melt is what the issue is these days. And so what was classified as being a 100-year floodplain 20 years ago is now the 50-year floodplain today. And so mapping becomes out of date pretty quickly, and especially if you haven't accounted in your engineering approaches to landscapes the way you try to reduce the peak flows that come down these systems. So you are trying to chase a magic line that puts more property at risk as climate changes. And that's that's tough to do when you build houses for 30, 50, 100 years and climate is changing on five-year, 10-year, and 20-year frequencies. So did the uh, Lake Huron residents change their slogan to cease the increase? Oh, they're very quiet now. I don't think <laughs> you'll hear from anybody. You know, I, I do a lot of, of swimming and hiking around uh, Huron. Of course, Ontario's uh, sky high as well, Lake Ontario and Lake Erie. And, and most of the newscasts you'll see every other every week, especially if you're in southwestern Ontario, is shoreline erosion, uber high Lake Erie levels, heavy wind and heavy damage, uh, homes being destroyed and put into the lakes at an alarm, alarming rate. 
uh, scallops developing, entire um, uh, sapping uh, going on on the shoreline, and retrogressive slumping occurring kilometers inland from the eroding shoreline. So we're we're at all time highs, and people are worried about that. So uh, you get protests when the extremes occur. The extreme high, one group will protest. The extreme low, another group will protest. And an extreme drought, you get fire. So it's that's a whole other. Uh, you know, a whole other effect on that. So you might argue we can't win one way or the other. And what climate change will do, it will exasperate the extremes. You will get wetter wets, you'll get drier dries, uh, you get a more energetic atmosphere, and hence you are, uh, the models are more difficult to pin down, and how you plan around 50-year and 100-year uh, climate change is, is the real tricky question. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how wetlands factor into mitigation strategies? I've, I've read several studies about, like, say, coastal wetlands uh, being like really important for stopping the, like, say, storm surges. Um, and, and also just general flooding of even riverbank areas as you decrease the wetland vegetation, the soil, and the, that kind of area around the these large water discharges it it really decreases the ability of the area to absorb that water could you talk a little bit about that in the north american context it's obviously a consequence of of european settlement you deforest the landscape for agriculture and automatically you have reduced the ability for uh, trees in particular forests in general to absorb water and evapotranspirate that back into the atmosphere. So uh, tree clearance uh, allowed water to erode phenomenal amounts of sediment in the fluvial systems. And you can see this in the floodplain deposits in Toronto, around all southern Ontario, uh, around all North America, where just removal of trees alone for agricultural purposes uh, had a dramatic effect on more water and more flooding, regardless of climate change. And now you layer climate change on top of that, and remember, another effect, not just forest clearance, is, is draining wetlands for agricultural purposes. And the installation of tile drains in agricultural fields was phenomenal. And most of Ontario, uh, southern Ontario, has been drained, uh, many wetlands, not the big ones, but the small ones, in order to facilitate agriculture. So there's been reclamation. There's been reforestation compared to 50 to 100 years ago. There's actually more tree cover in southern Ontario than there was back then. That's a good thing. Uh, Some removal of tile drains uh, and restoration of wetlands, or at least protection of wetlands, that's a good thing. But nowhere near what it was like pre-European settlement. So you have that double-edged thing where you've removed the landscape's ability to naturally buffer the amount of water that's released downriver systems, and uh, you've increased population densities and urbanization and, and agricultural activity in a changing climate that exasperates that. So you might think these conservation efforts are, are trivial in that context, but I think I think they're starting to have an impact. And I, I hope more agricultural gets converted back to wetland in that process. And we have some faculty here in our sciences uh, that are actually studying that issue. It certainly isn't a fast process either the, to create the, the vegetation systems, the, the soil properties back to wetland conditions. It it can take a while to do that. My guess, and again, I'm not the expert on it, that I think if you decommission tile drains in an agricultural field and move it to fallow, 
I know for sure, and this is my area, you've reduced sediment yield from those surfaces dramatically. Uh, of course, we've gone to a no-till cropping system in most of southern Ontario uh, since the 30s, uh, since conservation became into big. We know that no-till or at least uh, contour tilling was a big thing in terms of keeping sediment, nutrient-rich sediment on agricultural surfaces. But I think managing the water and the sediment go hand in hand. And I think you can see some pretty fast responses on an individual agricultural uh, field scale. But the problem is there's not enough of those connected together to see it at a watershed scale or uh, a southern province Ontario scale quickly. So you're right, it's slow and it's progressive at those larger spatial scales. I think there is maybe a small subset of people who may argue that, okay, let's go back to the pre-industrialization times and, and let's go back to when we didn't have these like urban sprawling centers. I don't think there's that many people who would argue that point when it comes to preventing flood hazards. I think most people would say, okay, so we have this problem in this region where there's a big flood hazard. Now let's geoengineer a way for the flood hazard to decrease. So for instance, directing a water channel, uh, like a river channel away from a city. What do you think about some of these solutions that could you actually give some examples of, uh, of some solutions like this? Yeah. And if, if you look at it from an economic perspective, if you've built a subdivision, a house, you built apartment buildings, you've built inf- urban infrastructure. And as a matter of fact, in the, in the floods that hit Toronto, the two big floods that hit Toronto, and it's not just that infrastructure, it's pipelines, it's telecom communications, it's uh, everything that we buried under the ground surface that were influenced by eroding uh, rivers uh, um, and ravines and things of that nature. So you're right, you have to get into a let's protect it strategy. It applies mostly in the older infrastructure, so that's downtown Toronto, the old city of Toronto, uh, Scarborough, parts of Etobicoke. And uh, when I take my students out to look at these river valley systems, you can see the you can see the historical efforts to do that, just like stabilizing a riverbank uh, from an eroding, um, more dynamic or energetic river. You can see efforts in the 30s, you can see efforts in the 60s, and you can see efforts in the 90s to try and prevent that. All of them very different engineering approaches to doing it. So liken it to band-aids on a, a really serious problem. Others think it's it's logical if you've protected just one subdivision or one set of infrastructures on that. The, there was an estimate, this is going back about five or six years, or sorry, seven or eight years ago, that, it w- that uh, the amount of infrastructure that would have to be protective in- infrastructure to um, that needed to be built would cost about $2 billion. And I'm sure that number's gone up since then. And of course, you can't do all that at once. Is it a 30-year plan, a 20-year plan? And by the time you hit 30 years, I'm sure it's $4 billion in corrected dollars. So, um, And who gets the priority? There's the big thing. Uh, which properties get protected? Which ones don't? Which infrastructure gets highest priority? Usually it's the one that's causing life, uh, one that's causing significant damage. Uh, or if you can convince your MPP or your city councillor that you are at the highest risk, maybe it's you. So thank you for uh, talking with us about this this really large topic. But let's let's uh, start our ending questions. We have a couple of questions we like to ask at the end of every podcast. Uh, my question for you would be, if you could solve one scientific mystery that really interests you, whether it's in the earth sciences or, or any field, what would it be? 
Uh, gee, I only get one. Hmm, that's a, that's a tough one. <laughs> From my perspective, uh, working with River Systems, I think it's it's matching the science that we currently do, and and the big issues. I can tell you two of them uh, is really a better understanding how sediment is moved and uh, redistributed in river systems and how they respond to that. That's a big one, and then how climate change will transform rivers to new regimes that aren't necessarily predictable. So those are two ends of the scale. But uh, for me, from a more personal perspective on this, it's trying to marry the traditional environmental knowledge that is what we knew about landscapes uh, 100 years ago, 500 years, 5,000 years ago. And the traditional environmental knowledge, uh, indigenous knowledge, I would love to see more of it integrated in the way we think about landscapes. So for me, an accomplishment would be to do that in a, in a coherent way. I mean, a lot of indigenous knowledge is oral history, so it gets difficult for research scientists to try and integrate that into the way we look at landscape change. And remember, my perspective is the Holocene, the last 10,000 years. Um, so I'm not looking at evolutions. Uh, I'm looking at post-glacial Canadian landscapes. So I'm not looking at million-year-old rivers or five-million-year-old rivers. I'm looking at 10,000-year-old rivers. And just trying to get a better sense of what they look like 8,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago is, is to me one of those great mysteries that we haven't resolved in terms of, of extent and magnitude of change. And I think the indigenous knowledge coupled with the modern science approach is, is something that we haven't accomplished to the scale that we need. And remember, there's rivers in New Zealand today that have uh, been classified as actually having human rights. Wow. Didn't know that. The Maori talked about how, as a water resource, as transportation, fishing, uh, everything that you rely upon or have relied on for thousands and thousands of years have now become part of of uh, a human rights issue. So when you dam a river, when you divert a river, when you do different things with a river, you're affecting human rights. Um, I'm not sure we'll get to that scale in the Canadian context, but certainly it's that concept that... Um, there's lots of examples in North America uh, on that particular front. So to me, that's that's my kind of wish list. Yeah, I, I like that kind of deep ecology perspective. I have I've had uh, some examples of that uh, actually in some of my classes. Yeah, you kind of respect respect these uh, these locations, these systems, and you'll continue to benefit from them. Yep. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. And that's sustainability, and that's a clear message, right? Mm-hmm. So, Joe, last question for you. What brings you optimism? My colleagues, to one extent, because I just have so much appreciation both within this institution and in institutions around the world. And I've, I've had the, the great privilege of working with colleagues in, in Denmark and in Iceland and in the U.S. And, um, and in China. And at the research level, the optimism is we get a lot of people that are really seriously concerned about logical, good scientific approaches to uh, discovering these things. But, you know, uh, each of us has a limited uh, a lifetime. Um, and so it's that next generation of, of people. So what motivates me is working with students, undergraduates, graduates, seeing their interests develop and evolve. And uh, there's a lot of competition out there for student interest. Uh, in many disciplines. And so uh, I appreciate both of you uh, having an interest in the earth sciences and in, and in geological landscape processes. And I wish every student had that. 
Uh, you know, geography, when I took it in high school in Canada, was what got me motivated about getting into this field because uh, geology and, and climatology and all of those things were in high school geography. When I went through, now it's a mere shadow of its former self at high schools in the Ontario jurisdiction. And so um, uh, uh, we hope students come into undergraduate education with, with more enthusiasm. But when I see undergrads get enthusiastic about it, boy, do I get motivated. Well, we hope that this podcast takes it to that length as well. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> All right. Uh, Sophia, would you like to do our ending uh, quote for the day? Yes, thank you. Uh, it's a little bit different than usual. It's uh, from a fictional character. It's, it's from a character from a story that I read when I was a kid. And that was my first kind of, I guess, the first time that I realized the, the impact that humans can have on their environment. So it's from the Lorax. Unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. well thank you so much for for being on our podcast today it was awesome how we really took a a policy turn that's something that we don't really do often in in our episodes so it's really cool that we we took that side of it as well so thank you so much for for sharing your knowledge with us well thanks for hosting and thanks for terrific questions really appreciate it and thank you to our listeners as well we hope to hear you tune in next time for another episode of earth news interviews Until then, leave no stone unturned. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the university. 